Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. I am Rick Thomas, and you're listening to Life Over Coffee. Over the past couple of days, I have been thinking about tragedy, national tragedies, not because I'm a cynical or pessimistic person. I don't I don't think in a, a dark kind of way, uh, but maybe because of social media, we just hear about stuff like we've never heard before. And many times, some of the events that we do hear about, they're really horrific. And so as I was thinking about national tragedies, and what I'm going to share with you also applies to anything that happens locally or even in your personal life, in your family, those that you love so much— But as I was thinking about it, I thought wisdom would say that we would want to prepare our hearts before bad things happen, and Christians can do that. God gives us enough sense and enough awareness of how things really are that we are people of joy. We're joy-filled people, but we also live in a, a dark world, and so there is this tension here in the juxtaposition. And so as we enjoy the benefits of being a Christian and rejoice in God's redemptive work in our lives and share that with much gratitude and optimism, we're also aware that we live in a fallen world and bad things happen. And so there is weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. And so I thought that it would be helpful if we thought about how do we prepare our hearts? What are some of the things to think about when bad stuff happens? And that's why I titled this article that I've written for you is How to Prepare Your Heart for a National Tragedy. Now, I've written it in an evergreen format, and what I mean by that is that it is evergreen. It is forever fresh. It's not a time-dated article where I'm writing about a specific event, but it is something that will apply today, next week, next month, next year. And my hope is is that, well, two things. One is that you would read it and, and begin to prepare your heart, not with cynicism in view or not with a uh, a pessimistic mindset, but because you are a realist, you understand the doctrine of sin, and you know what life is like in a fallen world, and so you want to prepare your heart for when a bad thing inevitably will come into your life as well as mine. And then, too, because it is evergreen, that that you will use this as an ongoing resource, and then if something bad does happen in the future, well, this will be something that you can pull down, and you can read it, you can watch or listen because I have a podcast here as well as a video. And so hopefully it will be an immediate resource to you to be thinking about how to prepare yourself. You know, we, we you probably have thought about this before. You, you don't want to start thinking about how to work through a tragedy when it happens, because when things are falling apart all around us, hopefully we have done the preparatory work, the preventative work, so that we can step into those moments. It's like an EMS a person who receives the training before the event happens. Well, that's kind of what I have in view here. And so I've titled the article, How to Prepare Your Heart for a National Tragedy. Let me share that with you. Sometimes the English language is inadequate for conveying our thoughts. Words always seem to fall short when there is a personal or national tragedy. 
tragedies remind me of Job's friends who made a wise choice in the beginning not to speak so quickly. And that's probably the first thing that we want to think about. When a bad thing happens, the first thing we want to do is put our hands over our mouths that we just need to be quiet. I'll talk about that a bit more in a few moments. But horrific events render our minds into something like a busy intersection in gridlock. Each time I hear of a tragedy, and I'm thinking about a national tragedy at this moment, I tend to mentally pause and reflect and even mourn. You do this too because, well, we're Christians and we care. That's what Christians do. We also want to prepare our hearts as we respond to these terrible events. And so if you have something going on in your life now, or as you think about when it does inevitably happen, how do you prepare your heart? Uh, How do you become a difference maker in somebody's life? Another reason that we care, not just because that we're Christians, but we also can't stop thinking about a tragedy because we're all humans. I mean, we're all different, but still yet we're all the same. We're men and women born in Adam, sharing similar victories and collective losses. We love life, and when someone snuffs out the life of another person, for example— I mean, there is a sense of wrongness. We have this intrinsic morality that is in us, and it transcends our differences while uniting us in our humanity. And because of that, we do need guidance on how to think about what's wrong with us in these moments. If we don't have a way to think about what went wrong, then our agendas, our experiences, our biases, they can blind us to the actual need only compounding the complexity. And that's why we have a transcendent authority that helps us. We have something that transcends our differences. In John 17, 17, Jesus said this, sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. And so we have something that guides us and it gives us the right bias and the right presupposition and the right interpretation when we think about the bad things that happen in our world, because we need something more objective than ourselves to think about murder and massacres and the nonsensical mayhem that goes on seemingly all the time. Now, mercifully, God's Word can help to bring sanity to our thoughts by giving us a way to ponder the problem of evil in our world. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, Paul has provided us a deep and rich template that makes a beautiful guide when tragedy comes, whether on a national level or the loss of a loved one. And so what I want to do is to share Romans 8 with you, specifically verses 26, 27, and 28. And then I want to pull out four words out of this text and then look at them in a sequence. And it's all under the the context of how to prepare your heart for a national tragedy. So this is what Paul said in Romans 8, starting in verse number 26. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray 
uh, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself, inter- himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things do work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is Romans eight twenty six through 28. Now, there are four keys here that I want to highlight. Paul lays out four sequential and crucial elements that will help us to better process what we collectively experience when a tragedy happens. I'll mention them briefly here so that you'll know the pathway that I am taking, and then later I'll make some practical applications. But the four words in order are, number one, quiet. Before you speak to someone when a bad thing happens, learn what God says. Job's friends did get it right initially. They were quiet. As you know, they did start talking too. And so the first thing when tragedy happens is we want to be quiet. And then number two, we want to pray. Ask God for his perspective on the tragedy, reflecting vertically before speaking horizontally is practical wisdom that declutters the mind. And so first, we want to be quiet. Second, we want to pray. Number three, we want to believe. As we pray, we begin to trust the Word of God as illuminated by the Spirit of God. As we engage God and his word, we begin to believe that he will inform us of how to speak redemptively to others. Be quiet, pray, believe, and then four, act. Faith without works is dead. And so we respond to what God is calling us to do. Faith without works is dead. And so once we have learned from the Lord, we want to speak and we want to act in a way that reflects Christ to the world. And so the four steps here, that the Spirit will help us and declutter our mind. First, be quiet, then pray, then we begin to believe. Our faith is enriched and emboldened as guided by the Word, and then we step out and act on certain things. And so let's take quiet first. Tragedies force me to press into God with a quiet and reverent spirit. It is sobering because of my many weaknesses, meaning my own personal biases, my own tendencies, my agendas. I do not know how to think when bad stuff happens. I do not know what to say when a tragedy comes. And it has proven wise for me to to say nothing initially. Quietness applies to a national tragedy, adverse events closer to me, or even when a family member does something disappointing. I mean, quietness is a good first impulse. I am not saying that I always choose silence over speaking because that's not true. I will say something inappropriate too many times. It is unhelpful. I've done this. But James gave us sound advice about impulsivity 
and non-redemptive speech in 119 and, and 20 of his book. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, I'm contextualizing this again in, in light of a national tragedy, though you can apply it to any disappointment in your life. When someone sends you that that email and you, you have this ready, fire, aim, response that's not good when someone says something on social media and you don't like it. Quiet would be a very good first response. Part of that is because there is a mystery of, there's an element of mystery when trouble comes. I do not know everything. And even those on the scene of a national event. They have mixed biases and agendas and subjectivity. A tragedy must bring me to a place of biblical introspection and quietness as a first impulse. I have learned this through my own trials that have been quite deep quiet deep in my life and personal hurt. Many of you have are familiar with some of the stories. In 1987, my oldest brother was murdered. In 1997, my second oldest brother was murdered. And in those moments of profound loss, there were no words that could bind the wounds of the brokenhearted. Tragedies like these remind me of when Ezekiel went to bring comfort to some folks in Tel Aviv who were in a deep distress. He, he found it better to sit and to be quiet and to mourn. I love this passage in Ezekiel 3, 15 and 16. It says this, And I came to the exiles of Tel Abib, who were dwelling by the Chibar Canal. And I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. And so the first point that I would make that when tragedy or disappointment comes is quiet. And then the next thing is is prayer. Now we want to start talking. But we start talking to God. Not knowing what to say to others should not be a problem, but a motivation to pray. In our silence, we ask God to speak to us through his word. We trust him and want to learn from him so that we can do his will, which we won't know how to do until we spend time before him and in his word. Only God, who sees into the darkness, can bring sense to an evil world. I want God's word to shade the lens that gives me an an interpretation of the problem with evil in our world. I need the spirit to take my heart and, and search it. I want him to sort out my confusion and my hurt. The cultural noisemakers will not be quiet. They will talk about gun control and racism and mental illness and whatever their pet cause is that colors their interpretive filters. Their talking points have a place in the discussion, things we need to talk about, but I want to engage with them not first. I want to engage with God first, thus I will ask the Spirit to search my heart. 
he will retranslate my groanings to God-centered perspectives that will enable me to understand what I need to know and, and what I need to say. How can I know what is appropriate unless I speak to the omnipotent one, the omnipresent one, the omniscient one? The Lord will give me a renewed rest knowing that my prayers have been accurately retranslated by the Spirit of God. Though I don't know the particulars of what I am talking about, I know he is making all things come together for his good purposes, as this text says. Big tragedies need a big God to walk us through them. Without him, there is no way to endure the works of evil satisfactorily, so I pray. And so point number one, I want to be quiet. Point number two, I want to be motivated to pray. And now as I pray and as I engage God in his word, point number three, I, I begin to believe in a refreshed and renewed kind of way. Having my mind recalibrated by God, I can now see with biblical clarity. I'm not as lost. I'm not as confused before going to him. The pain is still there. I'm not saying that it subsides. Grief is a long, dark tunnel. And sometimes it can take months, if not years, to walk down or walk through that long, dark tunnel. And so even though the pain is still there, my heart is informed by and submitted to God. I believe. Believing God will always put the accent mark on his active goodness rather than the active evil in our world. Life events are about the accent mark. Where will you place it? On God's active goodness or the devastating evil? This question is not merely theoretical. The Christian's answer is the dividing line between our beliefs and our unbelieving culture. Believers believe in God. We find our guidance from his word. Thus, we enter into tragedy from a posture of faith, knowing God is working in ways we might not understand. Faith does not imply that we know the purposes or even know the outcome of God's work. What we believe is that he will bring good out of any tragic event. His appeal to us is to believe in him. If you had asked me how God could have brought good from the murders in my life, I could not have told you then. I can tell you now. God has used those sins sinlessly, a counterintuitive gospel message. God takes the evil in our world, flips it on its head, and brings about redemptive purposes. God works all things for good as long as evil exists. No matter the tragedy, his response will not change. He will be good, and he will do good and my experience affirms this to be true, though you do not need my experience to affirm it because the Bible says it is true. All things work together for good. Christians believe in God and they act accordingly. That is point number four. First, we are quiet. Second, we pray. And now with a recalibrated belief, we act. But before we get to the act, let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you believe in the active goodness of God despite tragedy? Huge question. 
a great question to talk about. Maybe this would be something to discuss with a spouse, with a family member, a close friend, a small group. Do you believe in the active goodness of God despite tragedy? And I say the active goodness of God. The goodness of God sounds kind of theoretical, but the active goodness of God, it it implies that God is doing something that is practical, functional, real world happening in our lives. It is active and real. Question two, are you more controlled and more informed by God's purposes than Satan's? That is where we have to have that recalibrated belief. We don't want to go out there and start talking and communicating without being quiet. Biblical introspection and mourning and then prayer as we're engaging God vertically before we engage people horizontally and then believing and we have to work at this so that we can be more controlled and more informed by God's purposes than Satan's. And then question number three, what is controlling your heart right now? If you are in a difficult moment, what is controlling your heart right now, the darkness or the light? John was talking about Jesus and said this, this is the effect of Christ on Christians, in him is life. This is John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. So as we step into point number four, action, we take the light of God's word into the world, and it overcomes the darkness. And so point number four is act. Before Jesus responded to trouble, he there were several times where he would just, he spent time adjusting his heart before the Father, and that is a wise model to follow. Though people were in crisis and they were looking for his help, he first needed to spend time with his father, being quiet, praying, recalibrating his faith. There is a time to respond to tragedies, but prayer should always precede those actions. My primary aim for saying these things is that you should take as much time as you need to saturate your heart through prayer and reflective study of God's Word. And it will be different for all of us. There is no formula here. Spend as much time on your on your knees. It doesn't matter if you're on your knees or not. You can stand up. You can walk around the block and pray. But spend as much time before the Lord as you need until your mind is sufficiently recalibrated by the Word of God. And then you can act, and now you're ready to you're ready to engage. And that's why that I am saying these things, that you saturate your heart through prayer and reflective study of God's Word. God will give you what you need to say when the time comes for you to share with others. If you have been quiet, prayerful, and believing. This is something that I tell our students as well. Uh, When they go to their first counseling session, what shall I say? Well, if you have spent time doing what you are supposed to be doing, in this case, studying how to become a biblical counselor, God will help you in that moment.
And in this case of a national tragedy or something more localized, if we have sat before the Lord in quietness and mourned before the Lord in quietness and then began to engage him vertically through prayer as we engage him through his word, as our faith is recalibrated, God will give you what you need to say in those moments. Our words and our actions must be spirit-led and biblically informed, and this will come in proportion to the time that we spend with God and his word. God is willing to guide us in the truth if we seek and trust him. Our call is to present prayer-based, word-informed answers to the world's problems. If you do this, I promise the Spirit who will intercede for you before the Father and will intervene for you before others. The Father may draw some people out of the darkness and into his glorious light through our humble obedience. It may not be apparent to our friends about God's purposes working out for good and how he is a relentless redeemer and how he can flip any horrible narrative on his head for mind-blowing reasons. People may not know, or people may lose sight. Maybe they knew, but they lost sight of these truths. But that is where you come in. You are God's light in a dark world. You are his wisdom, too. Weep with the weeping while asking God for the skill and the insight to move the narrative forward from what was meant for evil to what God intends for good. The title of this article I just shared with you is How to Prepare Your Heart for a National Tragedy. I took a look at Romans 8 verses 26 through 28 as God assists us in these things, and there are four keys for us. One, let's be quiet. Here's the sequence. Number two, let's pray. Number three, let's believe. And then number four, let's act, let's engage the world. Let me ask you a few questions before I wrap up. Number one, how do James's words about being quick to hear and slow to speak apply to you when you hear about a tragedy? And you can think globally, a big tragedy that happens in our culture or nationally, or maybe some lesser disappointment that comes into your life, but the application is the same, and perhaps there is wisdom there. As we practice on the smaller things, taking James's advice here, as we practice his advice on the smaller things, then we are preparing our hearts for the bigger, more disappointing things. The question is, how do James's words about being quick to hear and slow to speak apply to you when you hear about a tragedy? Number two, what is your first impulse? To learn from God or speak your mind? To learn from God or to blast something on social media? To learn from God or send that email? What is your first impulse? Now, the best way, maybe the only way to answer that, well, the best way to answer that question is to look in your rearview mirror. Uh, go through your social media stream where you have commented on things and see 
Were you speaking your mind? Were you being impulsive? Or were you being reflective because you have taken that instinctive time of being quiet and being prayerful, recalibrating your belief, and then you acted? Question number three, why do you want God to retranslate your prayers and illuminate your mind with his perspective on trouble? Talking about the spirit interceding for us. Why would you want God to retranslate your prayers and illuminate your mind with his perspective on the trouble at hand? Number four, are you experiencing transcendent rest when trouble comes? Ultimately, that is one of the results to this process that I'm talking about. And that is one of the ways that you can test yourself, so to speak, to see how well you are applying these four things of quiet, prayer, belief, and act by examining your transcendent rest. Transcendent rest is rest that rises above whatever's going on in your life. And so are you experiencing transcendent rest when trouble comes? My follow-up is, why did you answer that way? Whatever way that you did answer. And then the follow-up of that is, what has been your experience facing tragedy? Maybe you can spend some time reflecting on what your experience has been when tragedy has come into your life, just to take a measurement, a sober self-assessment to see where you are. And then number five, what has more power over your words when engaging others about a tragedy? Does God have more power over your words? Does a sinful attitude have more power over your words? A third option, does a canceling culture have more power over your words? Some people self-censor, that they won't say anything because they are afraid of the cancel culture. The follow-up, how did you answer this question? Is there something that you need to change about yourself? If so, what is that thing and what is your plan? You've been listening to How to Prepare Your Heart for a National Tragedy. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.